como 10 minutos. Okay. Nada más que eso y de ahí viene el, el, el sendero nuevamente de unos 3, 4 metros de ancho. Welcome to another episode of Strangers Abroad. This podcast is a series of conversations with the wonderful and weird people I met while backpacking throughout Latin America. These are the hitchhikers, the couch surfers, the expats, the thrill seekers, the mountain climbers, the volunteers, and society quitters. The people who, for one reason or another, made the decision to challenge themselves, to leave behind the comforts of home, venture out into the world to see what happens. Here we go. The scent of citrus brings me back. I turned, and Thomas is sitting right next to me, calmly cutting into the flesh of an orange and unwrapping one slice at a time. I became aware of my surroundings and realized all of the people around me. I had no idea if anyone else noticed that I had been obnoxiously sobbing for the last half an hour. The people closest to us was a couple only a few spaces away. Uh, what do you, uh, what do you have there? I said, trying to be as nonchalant about my situation and quickly wiped away my tears and runny nose. Ah, uh, it's a German children's book I found in Cusco, written in German, he exclaimed. As he begins to describe the premise of it, the man closest to Thomas squinted inquisitively under his bifocals and turns to us. Ah, the man said in a German accent. That was my favorite as a child, and I can't believe you found it in Peru. The two started going back and forth in German, and I turned away to try and collect myself. After a few minutes, they switched back to English. You know, the German man said, this is my second time in Machu Picchu, and it has remained unchanged. It's incredible, said the woman next to him, wearing a fedora that made her voluptuous curls push out and spiral down her back. Her accent was different, not German, but I didn't know where to place it. We've been traveling for a few months now and have seen quite a bit, but nothing is like this view, the woman said, as the wind latched on to one rogue curl and tried to carry it down the mountain with it. My ears perked up and I started asking them where else they had been. Well, we're going to be traveling for a year and are dividing it between Latin America and Asia. We came up from Argentina and are making our way north. Holy shit, that is so cool, I said. How are you able to do that? The park attendant came down to announce that the mountain would be closing soon and we had to go back down to the city. The four of us do -si -do our way back down the mountain, swapping talking partners along the way, which made like the hour and a half long journey seem to pass in a few minutes. Once we got back down, we found a ledge to rest our feet on that overlooked the entire ancient city. I saw with fresh eyes what had once only been pictures in a book come to life in front of me. Blanco reinterpreted some of the stories they had heard on the tour that morning, and in an instant we were transported to thousands of years ago, when this place was still an active secret, hidden from the rest of the world. Today, you can still walk through this architectural wonder. So as we began to wander about, we speculated about the lives of those who used to call this home. As we brushed our fingers onto the perfectly placed stones, Blanca's storytelling reconstructed the scenes of the city being built and inhabited. 
Most of the stones that are used are well over 50 pounds, but it's believed that no wheels were used to bring them up the mountainside, meaning that they were pushed by the strength of the ancients almost 8,000 feet far farther from the ground, trying to get closer to the sky. I, I can't even imagine the pain that they went through to carry these stones, while I had struggled climbing up that mountain with only a small backpack. I envisioned them on a similar route, like I had just been on a few hours before, but taking their time. There was no rush or hurry. Their brute strength was fueled by immortal gods and coca leaves until they reached the hidden plateau to build their secret haven in the clouds. As we walked along the city blueprint, Blanca pointed out the differences between over 150 structures the city contains. We walked along the paths where the ancient footsteps had moved about their daily routine and envisioned those feet walking from the bathhouses to temples, royal quarters to resting corners, playing out what the mundane moments of this ancient space would have been like. It was so intimate, like walking through someone else's home when they've gone out for a quick errand. Excited that you have it to yourself and get to pretend what it feels like to be yours. We ended at the Astronomical Observatory, a sacred stone that accurately indicates the changing of the season on the vernal and autumnal equinox, where the sun will sit directly over the stone and cast no shadow. All of these thoughts, this space was running through my head, how this whole area used to be someone's home and later hiding space. I hope that you, my listener, gets the chance to walk through Machu Picchu. The energy of the space is ineffable, either because of the secrets and unknown histories it holds, or because we as Westerners have put an emphasis on that space, a self-fulfilling spiritual prophecy maybe, but whatever it was, I was hooked and I never wanted to leave. I felt fully present, something that is difficult for me because I, I tend to escape and zone out and there are rare places and people that keep me present and don't allow me to run away. And they make me feel like I've always been there, like I've never lived any other life. I'm not sure if it was Machu Picchu or the company that I shared that day, but I was present and the closest to happiness that I had felt in a long time. So whether I was playing into a nostalgic narrative that never existed, where there really is something sacred about this space. I don't know, nor do I care. For my experience was erythral. In this episode, you will get to experience some of Blanca's top-notch storytelling skills that thrust me into the past. And she will include not only stories from Latin America, but those from across the globe. Here's her story. Did you have any large travel experience before you took this trip? So I've been traveling since I'm a kid because my parents love to travel. So since we were very little, we started traveling, but not really over a month or something like this. Most of the time is something around a month, but there was always this need of, yeah, we should do this longer. And that's why we tried to make this happen, the chance to have a longer trip. 
Mm-hmm. And so, during your most recent trip, you did it with your partner, Heiko. How did you two meet? We were actually flatmates. So, when I moved to... He's German. So, when I moved to Germany, after a while, I looked for a, a share flat to live in because I wanted to improve my German and just meet people and like that. So, I ended up in his flat. And after a while of getting a little bit to know each other, that's how we end up together. Wow. So how long were you partners before you decided to take a really big trip together? Yeah. We were flatmates for around like three, four months, something like that. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That was not much. (laughs) Right. And been together for, uh, yeah, like four years and a half already now. So what inspired your year-long journey we both separately independently we always have this idea of uh, doing a a world trip or a long trip or something like this we start talking about it eventually like yeah that would be great and these kind of things then it happened that the year before we started the trip I was working in office and I was pretty unhappy there so things were not really working out. It was the first time in my life that I'm not happy with what I'm doing at the, uh, as a job. And the whole thing was starting to stress me out very, very much. At some point, the situation was really like not cool. So I decided to stop working in this place. At the same time, Heiko, I, yeah, at work it was like not much to do or really relaxed. So it fit really good for him also to ask for a sabbatical. And that's how pretty much everything started developing and the idea started being a bit more consistent. Then we bought a huge, amazing, incredibly huge world map. We put it in the kitchen, so it's pretty much the whole wall of the kitchen. So then every time you're there, you just see countries and places and things and your imagination just start spinning crazy. And that's how we started defining where are we going to be or where are we going to go. That's amazing. It was really hard because, as you know, because you're also a traveler, there's so many places and in a year, it's a long time, but it's actually very short in terms of the world. So it was really hard to leave full continents or complete continents out of our uh, journey and things like this. But Absolutely. Yeah. How did you guys compromise which countries to go to? It was really hard to come up with rules. So why you keep this country and why you kick this other out, it's really complicated. So we start trying to pull out some random rules, like, yeah, if the country is in a conflict situation, we don't go. Or if something is going on in the country that we are ethically not in favor of or that we don't want to just ignore, then we will keep it out. We decide that since we live in Europe and we will probably be living in Europe for a while, the whole Europe is out because mm. it's nearby, so we can always do this on holidays or a weekend or whatever. Yeah, then we kicked out very expensive countries or countries that will blow the budget badly, like the US, for example, or Canada or things like this. We were keeping it quite flexible, so at that time Heiko was learning Spanish, so all the Spanish-speaking countries looks very attractive to us to go. And pretty much we started defining South America. That will be like the first half of our trip. 
And the second half that would be Asia, we leave it pretty, pretty flexible. So like, yeah, we will figure it out when we are there. That's pretty much how we did it. Very cool. So what did you find the difference between going to different countries that spoke the same language as you? Did you find it hard to understand or connect with people in Argentina or Peru, you know, people who also speak ostensibly your same language? Or did you find some type of camaraderie, some sense of, I guess, like brotherhood with people from Latin America since you are from Spain? So you know that I don't look pretty much the standard Spanish kind of person. So what I realized is like most of the people, and since I'm traveling with a German, that he looks very German. So most of the people assume that we are uh, like non-native speakers or non-Spanish speakers. And as soon as you start speaking to the people in Spanish, the people was really happy about that. And you see that they are willing to tell you stories and to communicate that with most of the foreigners which don't speak in Spanish or so, it's much harder and they are just limited to a couple of sentences and like that. But people were really friendly and happy and willing to just explain you things and tell you things. So there was definitely a much easier uh, traveling for us in South America because of the language, definitely. And the people is really, they have a lot of connections with Spain because somebody will be living in Spain or they've been living here for a while or whatever thing. So it's immediately, oh, where are you from? And yeah, my cousin is in Madrid as well. And like this and like that. And uh, yeah, we were there on holidays. And there is a strong connection between both uh, sides of the world in that way. So it's always nice. It's always really nice. And even if the languages are very slightly different, so uh, how they use it or so, but the understanding and the possibilities of communication are really strong and that change a lot. Absolutely. Do you think that you had a more connected experience in Latin America because you shared the same language and because do you think that they were a little bit more open to you or it was just it's easier to communicate versus them being open to all tourists but there being more of a language barrier? So if we were in a group mixed with locals and like this, we will end up speaking Spanish and the foreigners or the non-Spanish speakers will end up together and they are foreigners so they will be talking about their things but definitely not about the local things so because you cannot participate in that conversation that happened quite often interesting so you were kind of able to be in both worlds of it you know like you could hop back and forth between talking to the tourists and telling them like what the locals knew and were up to like that one time when we were taking that taxi ride to the hot springs after Machu Picchu and that taxi driver got really upset and he just like translated the whole thing for us like I wouldn't have known I knew he was upset and I knew he kept saying brother but I was like not totally understanding as to what he was saying specifically so you're kind of able to like play in both of these worlds that really happened a lot that we run into whatever weird situation and uh, I'm the only person that is able to communicate with the locals and explain the situation and there is a strong cultural difference but at least you have the language which helps a lot 
even though sometimes it was really like, I'm not sure if you understand what I'm saying. I know you understand the language, but I don't think you understand my point. So what are some cultural differences that you see between Spain and Latin America? Um, I guess a lot, or at least that what we experienced during the trip, it's of course, how to say it, like levels of comfort or comfort zone and things like this. So we have this, I think I told you when we met, we had this situation in Bolivia that we were in the middle of the of the salt line, of the flat line. How do you call that in English? The salt flats? The salt, yeah, okay. We were there. <laughs> and we're sleeping in a very basic, very, very basic accommodation. And there was a fire, so uh, nothing happened, but there was a lot of smoke and it was really toxic. And there was a French uh, fireman say, saying that we cannot sleep there, there's no chance. So I'm the only one able to speak to the guys there, so I have to explain them that this is toxic, that we will not be staying there. And they will not understand it because the fire is out. And it's like, yeah, but the smoke is toxic. Yeah, but there is not so much smoke and the rooms are, are very nice. But it has nothing to do with the rooms being nice or ugly. It's mean in the way of being dangerous and toxic and we don't do these things. And um, then you realize that, yeah, things like problems from the first world, not things that you consider at the moment, like some people in a very different situation will not even consider that. So if the fire is out and nobody's in hurt, we can sleep there even if the whole room is covered with toxic smoke. And then you see it like they don't understand what's my point because they don't see a problem there, but we see a problem there and a big one. So it's a, these kind of little things. Right. They, like, so then what are some of the little differences that you picked up on that maybe you enjoyed or maybe you were like, oh, this is so interesting that you do it this way that aren't necessarily confrontational, but just like this is like, like a country's personality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, Linguistic, for example, there were a lot, and that was really fun. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you were saying something, and they just look at you with like these huge eyes, meaning I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> and it's like, okay, what, what is it exactly that you don't know what I mean? It's like, what do you mean with this word? And and they don't even have it, or they just use it in a completely different way. So they don't. So you're talking, you're talking the same language, but there is this. Ah, you don't you don't use that word? Okay, then I have to find a synonym or something because I don't know. I always use this one. So and also like what can be rude. So probably you know in in Argentina when you say coger, which is to get. To get in Spain, you use it all the time for everything, but in Argentina it has a very very rude meaning. So nobody use it. You have to make a huge effort not to use it when you're talking. It's just a normal word, but for them has a very, very rude meaning. So that can create a lot of sometimes tension and sometimes weird moments and sometimes just funny because it's like, oh my God, you Spanish people, how can you say this or that? Things like these. Interesting. Let's shift and talk about the second half of your journey throughout Asia. And what was that like going from kind of the convenience of being able to communicate very clearly and there being one common language versus 
so many different languages that I'm assuming you guys are not, yeah. you know, don't know how to speak just yet or know like the bare bones of it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was a, it was definitely much more challenging in that way because your chances of communicating are much uh, so are reduced dramatically and uh, then some parts make it very easy because they will all speak English or something like this so then it's not a big deal but then you you lose that so you lose the yeah extending a big conversation but I think the most complicated place probably was Mongolia because Mongolia is just open for tourists for visitors not that long ago so and it's a very particular country because of the most of the population are still living nomads so they are not located in cities or they are not really settled which means the contact with foreigners is very little and that makes the experience very particular very genuine and very very interesting definitely and very hard because they just will speak Mongolian you don't speak Mongolian nobody can speak Mongolian is a very hard language to learn but they are still incredibly friendly and and welcoming and they will try their best to, with gestures with mimic with whatever just to communicate with you that's very very that was really great but you miss this chance of just sitting with the locals and talk that's for sure absolutely that's so interesting what jumped out or surprised you while you were traveling throughout Asia? Are they just as diverse in the same way that Latin American countries are like have similarities, maybe a shared history? How would you compare the two? So I found that like in South America, we were there for almost eight months. And at the end, what you can see is really a very similar pattern among the countries. So each one has their personality, that's for sure. But they are quite similar somehow in food and landscape and things like this. They share much more. And I found Asia much more diverse. So Mongolia and China, they have nothing to do with each other. So like it's really, they are neighbors, but they don't really share much culture in everything. So some countries, they might have more similarities, but still it's... Personally, I would find it much more diverse because geographically they are much more diverse, nature-wise, and then cultural-wise, they are much older, and I think that gives them a much different personality from the neighbor countries. That was my feeling too. Interesting. So, what were some an instance where you're like, whoa, we are not, we are not home anymore. We do not do things this way throughout, so, throughout definitely, Asia. Definitely so a place that it's really very, very different to us will be definitely Mongolia. So you find people living as nomads. So they will have these gears, their tents. They live with their animals from their animals and a strong relation with nature in a very isolated way because there's no roads there is just like weird paths if you want to call them like this and one of these tent with a family will be so far from any others 
and that comes to another situation that happens there, another story that was pretty funny, because uh, the family share the gear, so everybody lives there, and that comes to something which is really valuable or strong in, in the Western countries, which is your privacy. You don't have that because you live in a room, portable or not portable, but you live in a room with all your family there. So the concept of privacy is something that it doesn't apply there at all. So we were there, we met there a, a guy uh, from Taiwan and he was living with the family for a while there in Mongolia. And we were all just wondering, of course, because we are stupid and basic people, like what is sex for these people? How do they do this? Uh, and the guy look at us and say, they do it in the room with everybody. Like, how do you know that? Like, because I was there sleeping with the family as we did every night. And then there were some noises that woke me up and I just had a look and it's like, oh, okay, ooh, yeah, I tried to fall asleep again. <laughs> but he said, the, the marriage, so that the couple was there, the kids were there, I was there, and that's normal. And that's not normal for us anymore. So that would be a really weird situation, which for them, it's life. It's the normal thing. They're extremely natural. And with that, you can imagine a ghost catalogic, but yeah, there's no toilet. The whole surrounding is toilet there. So there is no problem with that. If you have to pee, you just go there and just pee and that's it. It's like, yeah, but... We need walls. <laughs> we need a door for that kind of things, but for them it's a completely different story. That will be probably the most different. Wow. Yeah. That's... You have to get uh, adjusted to that, and uh, it's how it is for them, definitely. That's <laughs> amazing. So how has that shifted your perception about Western amenities or normalcies that someone who is living a more nomadic lifestyle make you reflect about maybe how silly some of the things that we do are? Or does it make more sense to have so much privacy? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a really good example. Yeah, so we were there for uh, almost a month and we were staying with families for almost, yeah, like most of the time. At the beginning, you have to get used to it. So not get used to it, it's like, hmm, that's awkward. But then eventually you just realize that is not awkward, that is actually natural. So everybody pee, we all know it, otherwise you die. So there's no problem, there's no secret on anything on that. But we made a wall around us regarding some things which these people has no problem because they have a much basic or simple connection with everything. So importance to things which are not really that important. Right, right, right. It definitely makes you rethink. I think yeah. walls are is a great metaphor and actual term for how Western cultures have kind of like closed them off to this sense of yeah. being connected with with our natural origins. Yeah, 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 I think society since not actually not that long ago, maybe 150 years or maybe even just 100, I don't know, but society is turning us into weird paths which are really very much against nature itself so with i don't know if it's the development of religion or probably it's afterwards i don't know but 
things which are completely normal, lateral, and actually you must do these kind of things to live, they turn out to be a sort of a taboo. In a way, we are isolating ourselves a little bit, I think. Right. And then you come up with people in Mongolia, which they are living in a tent in the middle of nowhere, but they have much more connections with the neighbors that I do have with mine, and mine are just next door, and these guys are like kilometers far away. It's a, it's a silly thing, but it's happening, that's for sure. Absolutely. No, that was beautiful. So travel is pretty uncomfortable, and that's a really great example of you being very much out of your comforts of home. So how do you find comfort in the uncomfortable, especially after traveling for such a long time, because it can just wear on your body after a while. So how do you find comfortable and practice self-care in that sense? At the end, it was pretty much reduced to a comfortable bed. If the bed was comfortable, I was just feeling fantastic there, and that was it. But it's not all the time, and you know it, like it's not all the time that easy or that simple. The, the home concept is not really something that I need that much. So I find home in very weird places that you just feel extremely comfortable there and you don't want to go. And maybe they have really nothing, but it's just a feeling that you just like it there and you will stay longer. One of the things that I found throughout travel is that your definition of what home is no longer becomes a place, but it becomes more of a sense of the world is your home and I am my own home. And it's a very like grounding experience and can kind of make you feel very connected wherever you are in the world, even if you've never been there before, if that makes sense. Kind of like that too. Somehow the things start getting less and less important and the feelings start getting more and more strong. So you end up in a village and for whatever reason you just like it there. This happens to us quite often that we just, we were thinking of just spending maybe one night or something like this and we end up being there for more than a week because we, and we were doing nothing, nothing particularly spectacular or anything, but we just like it there. And we were just feeling comfortable there, and then we stay. And yeah, Sometimes you're like, oh, I just can't help tear myself away. So what are some examples of, like, actual places? And I'm just let's just keep it to your most recent large trip that you're like, ah, oh, what is it about this place that keeps me here? So we have no strong interest to go to China because, I don't know, for whatever reason... We were not that uh, interested in going to China at all, but we had to go because this is the only way to leave uh, Mongolia or Russia, but Russia was not out, not, not in our plans. So, yeah, we said, we just, you know, we just crossed China. Maybe we go to Beijing, the Great Wall, and, and we just leave because we're not interested. And we end up staying 10 days in Beijing because we loved it so much. Wow. We just... So so we arrived there. We were extremely lucky, that has to be said, because they had uh, whatever anniversary celebration the week before. So they stopped the, the um, all the fabrics and things like the manufacturing places because they wanted to have pictures with blue sky. So they have to stop the cars and all the pollution things to get blue skies. And then we arrived there. So you have Beijing with awesome weather, blue skies, perfect temperature, everything is fantastic. And we just like it in there. 
the food was so good. It was so much variety and amazing. And then we went crazy buying tea because we are strong tea drinkers. And these people would make the tea ceremony for you. And you go to the Great Wall and the whole city, it's... Uh, there's a lot of places that are very different to each other. They have amazing parts. So we just, the weather was so good that we took our books and just go one afternoon after the other to the park just to lay down and read our books and enjoy the Chinese doing Chinese things. And yeah, a place that we really wanted to pass. That's awesome. And this happens in some other places. In Colombia, actually, in the coffee area, there is a little village called Salento, and we plan just to pass by there. So because we have to go north, so we have to pass by. And yeah, we spent there five or six days just enjoying the nice weather in the coffee area. And we're not even coffee drinkers, but we just like it in there as well. Yeah, there's many places that this has happened. Absolutely. Just, yeah. Absolutely. On my trip from... Mexico down to Peru, I kind of had like, okay, there's three big countries that I wanted to explore, Mexico, Costa Rica, and Peru, but I hit all of the ones in the middle, and those were the ones where I was like, damn it, why didn't I just stay, why can't I stay here longer, you know? Like, Nicaragua was, was so cool, Belize was amazing, Colombia, like, all these places. It's the ones that you'd least expect, you know, I think your expectations are so low that you end up kind of getting swept up a little bit easier when things turn out better right so you traveled side by side with Heiko for the whole trip how did that influence your relationship it wasn't it, for sure it was not all the time easy actually the beginning was quite hard because at home normally we don't really argue we, we never had fights or anything like this but yeah, we have our jobs. So you see yourself like very few hours in the day if you think about it, no? And then at the beginning of the trip, it has so two things happen that we first have to find our rhythm while traveling because it's the first really long trip that we are doing. So you need to find your rhythm. Also the 24 hours together thing. And at the beginning, there was some tension and uh, we were fighting a lot, which is not really our thing uh, but after a while then everything just starts fitting so we find our rhythm that yeah we are relaxed we're enjoying places and things like this and then we are good together again in the 24 hours thing so I'm a very lucky person because Heiko is a person that you can really talk to him and it's very talkative very communicative guy and that just makes everything much easier and eventually we just talk things through and it's like, yeah, okay, easy going. And then at some point it just flew. So it, it flows like this and definitely our relation is much more stronger now. The understanding and the complicity and the communication just got much stronger. That's, uh, that's clear. I think a trip like this for a couple is something that it will make you very, very strong or it will destroy you. There is not really in between proof. It's a test for a couple, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think I mean you've experienced this yourself, so you know 
how it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, the relationship was not meant to go on. So, so everyone's, everyone's much happier now. But it is. It's an amazing test of a relationship. Because you also, not all, you're learning so much about yourself in a new context and another person. What were some like new things that you learned about yourself and Heiko and your relationship? You learn to be more patient. This is something to Heiko. Heiko is a wonderful guy, but how to say it? Like, you know, you make a decision and you execute very fast. No, he needs his time. I'm not a patient person, so normally this kind of behavior just drives me crazy, and I want to kill him. And this happened at the beginning. But eventually, I think I increase a lot my patient limits. So I'm much right. more relaxed now. You understand what is a priority for you, might not be for others, and this kind of thing. So this flexibility gives you a lot. Oh, that's so too. good. That's so good. Because it definitely, you start to see yourself in another light because all of the routines and all of the comforts that you just kind of like go about are no longer there and so it's kind of like who are you and who am I and like what are the things that are most noticeable that we need to learn how to mitigate a little bit. One other question. So we met at the top of Machu Picchu and earlier that day, which is such a great place to meet somebody. <laughs> and we met in the top of Machu Picchu. Yeah, Whatever. And then we, like, walked around Machu Picchu all day. So my question is, is, like, I, I like, looked around the town for a little bit and then walked up Machu Picchu Montaña, and I was only going to stay for a little bit, but I was so enamored. I'm just, like, I couldn't pull myself away from, like, being on the top of that mountain. Like, it was one of the most glorious and, like, beautiful and, like, tear-jerking times in my life. And then Thomas and I like serendipitously found each other on the top of that mountain and we just like stayed there I thought I was gonna go back early but there's just something that was like no I'm gonna stay like I can't leave until it's time to go because they close at noon so what was the beginning of your day like for like so, for that um, the day so on our arrival to um Aguascalientes we made a this this lady and her daughter from the Netherlands. So we walk all the way to Aguascalientes together. And the lady was taking the bus for sure, but the daughter wanted to go on the stairs as we planned to do. So then we decide to meet up together, same like you. Half past four, we met in the main square of the village. And then we walked to the door as well. And I was a little bit worried because I was definitely not fit at that time and I was since Bolivia I was struggling quite a lot from the altitude so it's like oh now we have all these stairs ahead of us and what is this going to but uh, then the three of us we were there and we started and it was just nice and everybody was talking kind of making you feel good and then when we arrived up there it was so crowded yeah so we went to the city and we were walking a little bit around and just making some pictures but we wanted to climb the mountain as soon as possible. I don't know if, well, I guess you remember, it was quite demanding, this mountain thing, but you make it. So then you arrive there, it was really beautiful weather, it's sunny, it's nice, and you have this amazing view in front of you. Oh, 
is this here is that it's this it's really amazing and the people is in a different mood and actually we were climbing the last part and this was pretty intense um we're climbing with this guy i was just when i'm tired i tend to make jokes just to make things a little bit better so i was just making jokes with the people that was climbing the stairs and everybody was suffering but there's this guy who's bringing the the ashes of his mother because the mother dream was to go to Machu Picchu, but she was sick and she died. And the guy is a Canadian, is flying all the way to Peru to climb Machu Picchu, to throw the ashes of, her, of uh, his mother from the top of the Machu Picchu mountain, which he did, and then he was going back home. So that was the trip for him, just to bring his mother to Machu Picchu. It was a whole strong feeling there because the place is amazing, it's magic. And then you see that it's strong for a lot of people and even person that has never been there just dream about it. And that was pretty intense. Oh my god, I totally remember that. Like I remember watching it happen and not yeah. and not knowing because you and I hadn't like spoken at that point. I don't think we had seen each other. And Thomas and I were taking photos. And then all of a sudden this guy like opens this jar and like spreads these ashes and we were like, oh my God. You know, it was like such a moment for like everybody, you know, because everybody had known whether or not you, you walked up the stairs or you took the bus, like that mountain was, it took an hour and a half to get up there. And especially for him to like travel to Canada. Yeah. There was such a, like a such a wide range of people there because earlier in that day I was there at like 9.30 in the morning and people were doing shots of Pisco and then there was this guy who you know is spreading his mother's ashes and it's just like people humans are so weird you know like it was just such contrasting experiences it's open for everybody and whatever their like purpose is there for that moment oh I love that when we went we went down the mountain and then we're sitting in this uh, on the top of this wall and just watching the seat the yeah the seat in front of us yeah and these these girls said like hey, i have to take a picture of you guys because you guys look awesome because we were just sitting yeah have you ever like okay uh do does anybody know this person it's like no not at all but she just developed a strong feeling or need to make a picture of the four of us just sitting in front of the seat it's like Okay. Yeah. Do it. Sure. <laughs> That's so and so. It's such a good photo. Have you seen it at all? Um, yeah. It's it's gonna be like the background for my podcast because that's exactly what it is. Like in that moment. We were all total strangers. Like, I had just met Thomas that day before, and we're all in Machu Picchu together, and we're all from a different country, and have, like, traveled, gone through, like, so many crazy ways just to, like, be there in that moment, and it was, like, so insanely satisfying. Like, Machu Picchu was definitely one of, like, the best days of my life. And, like, you, like, the two of you both made it. Like, you both are so communicative and just like open-minded and we just connected and I'm just so grateful that that place like brought us together you know definitely me too and this uh yeah it's this kind of special moments that just happens we could have sit anywhere in the mountain maybe never talk to each other but we just end up sitting next to each other and just somebody say something oh yeah look this that and we end up yeah, sticking together for a couple of days and 
talking about so many things and yeah. uh, and just enjoying it. And so, I hope that in 20 years we talk to each other. It's like, yeah, and how you guys met? Yeah, we met in the top of Machu Picchu. <laughs> it's, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. So teach me something in Spanish that you use a lot in Spain that I should know when I go there. Maybe like a cultural thing or you could use to um, choose to use some type of a quote. Kind of typical, it will be like, enjoy life, you just have one. So, disfruta de la vida porque solo tienes una. <laughs> that would be a kind of thing. <laughs> that it's a, yeah, that would be a kind of thing. Oh, I love it. That's perfect. If you're ever in New York or wherever you need a place yeah. to stay that I'm at. You're so welcome wherever we are, which is still unclear, but so far you're very welcome in Hamburg and you are welcome The next morning, the four of us decided to walk back through the mountains and along the train tracks to leave the ancient histories behind us and move towards civilization and a more modern future. As I walked away, I thought about what might have been the most impactful part of this journey was not experiencing this divine mystery of the ancient world that is something that I've wanted to experience since childhood but to be able to share that experience with wonderful but complete strangers whom the chances of meeting were slim to none. The probability of things not working out outweighs the chances of them actually happening, a one in a million kind of a thing. But there we were, all drawn to the same place and just happened to sit next to each other. Striding together, I listened to our eight individual feet create a syncopated rhythm, and I felt more connected than ever before, like I could see the whole mathematical grid that bridges all beings and coexist on multiple planes and quadrants. Some people have straight lifelines, while others live in the ups and downs of functions or parabolas. And sometimes these lifelines can cross and have one, two, or infinitely many solutions while others run parallel with each other and will never touch, but will always lie on the same plane. Regardless of whose lines we cross in our conscious lives, we are connected on the lines of this infinite grid and share the same space, and we'll never really know where our lines will end or take us. So all we can do is appreciate the moments when you share solutions with someone else's lifeline and learn from their points and experiences in other quadrants of the world that their lines have crossed and accept that some are running parallel to you and you will never meet them. So in this moment, I realized that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but I needed to stop worrying about this conventional straight line and what my next point was and just focus on how I was connected to the grid as a whole and what I wanted my whole line to look like. Blanca showed me that it's best to lean into the rises and runs of your own line and that not everyone's is straight. So with that in mind, a gratefulness swept up over me as I listened to the sound of all of our shoes walking in rhythm against the Andean stones that led us towards our next point. And I was happy that I got to share at least one solution, one 24-hour cycle with these wonderful strangers who accompanied me on my path, on our path on our shared point.
llamarles y, y... y decidimos. Vale. ¿A don Luis? Sí. Ah, ya, sí. Ah, eso Usted ve. ¿Ya? Sí. Porque también pueden ir, los puedo ir a dejar. Ustedes caminan y volver con él. In our next episode, we meet Duran in an oasis in the middle of the Peruvian desert. His journey is just taking off as ours ends. But we were able to share and reflect upon our alternative perspectives on one strong commonality, home. It was comforting. It's comforting. Especially because I was there alone also. It was the beginning of my trip. I flew alone. I didn't really know anyone. I just showed up to like... This the hostel that was recommended to by someone that was on the bus. You know, I took like an overnight bus from Cusco all the way down there. So I was like, I didn't know where I was going, what I was gonna do, and then like, I, I met you, and I was like, wow, New Yorker. Like I was like, all right, someone like you know I could relate to that would, right. that would understand me, and like I could actually get like some advice from that. Next time on Strangers Abroad. <laughs>